Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. So things are still pretty weird, but we're here to bring you a classic deep dive episode, looking ahead to the May argument session that's going to take place over the telephone. Later in the episode, which we're recording on Friday, April 24th, we're going to bring on one of the lawyers who's arguing in this rare historic session, Riaz Kanji, who represents the Creek Nation in the long-running dispute between that tribe and the state of Oklahoma. The state warns of complete chaos if the justices rule that the Creek's 19th century reservation is still in attack today, but Riaz is going to explain to us why he thinks that's overblown. We're also going to discuss all of the latest Supreme Court news, including all six opinions Yikes. issued the week of April 20th, ranging from a classic 5-4 lineup to some more interesting mixes. And one of those mixes came in Ramos against Louisiana, where the court ruled that unanimous jury verdicts are required in a tangled set of opinions that were anything but unanimous, and we'll give an update on the latest coronavirus cases bubbling up at the court. But before we talk about Ramos, Kimberly, can you start us off on some of the other opinions that came out? Well, we had a couple of opinions in environmental cases with Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, at least partially in dissents in both of the cases. So we got uh, in County of Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund, the court in a 6-3 opinion by Justice Breyer ruled for the environmentalists, well, sort of, on the scope of the Clean Water Act, ruling that it applies to some pollution discharge that don't go directly into a major body of water. So let me unpack that a little bit. The Clean Water Act forbids the addition of any pollutant from a, quote, point source to, quote, navigable waters without an appropriate permit from the EPA. Now, Breyer said that the statutory provision at issue here requires a permit when there is direct discharge into navigable waters or when there is, quote, a functional equivalent of direct discharge. Whatever that means. Uh, Even the court realized that the decision could be, uh, well, clearer, I guess, saying that a more absolute position may be easier to administer. But the court said that the law's language, structure, and purposes mandated this particular result. And so we got not just one, but two dissents. Uh, Thomas, joined by Gorsuch, dissented, saying that the majority failed to adhere to the text. And Alito wrote his own dissent, which began like this. If the court is going to devise its own legal rules instead of interpreting those enacted by Congress, it might at least adopt rules that can be applied with a mediocrum of consistency. Here, however, the court makes up a rule that provides no clear guidance and invites arbitrary and inconsistent application. Wow. Tell them how you really feel, Justice Alito. So what about this other environmental case? Well, this other one is Atlantic Richfield, uh, which we actually ran a deep dive episode on back in December from our colleagues over at Bloomberg Environment, who actually went to Montana to talk to the residents of the town impacted by the Superfund site there. So this case involves the Anaconda Copper Smelter in Butte, Montana, as um, Justice Roberts noted, that uh, the area is contaminated with over 300 square miles of arsenic and lead. All right. The dispute stemmed from a suit by landowners against the current owner of the smelter, uh, Atlantic Richfield Company, and they were seeking restoration damages, which under Montana law must be spent on rehabilitation of the property. So the landowners proposed a restoration plan that included measures that went beyond what EPA found was necessary to protect uh, human 
health and the environment. And the question for the justices was whether the law, uh, known as CERCLA, or the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. Rolls off the tongue. Whew, CERCLA, uh, strips Montana courts of jurisdiction over the landowner's claims for restoration damages, and if not, whether the act requires the landowners to seek EPA approval for their restoration plan. Now, Roberts wrote the opinion and said that the law doesn't strip Montana courts of jurisdiction, uh, but that the lower courts here were wrong to find that the landowners didn't need to get EPA approval. So Atlantic Richfield might be off the hook. So this was a 7-2 to opinion, sort of. Um, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch dissented, um, some of them partially, so a little bit of a convoluted uh, lineup, but that's going to be kind of the story of the episode. Exactly. And yeah, in this Atlantic Richfield case, there was a little back and forth between Gorsuch and the chief and their opinions. Gorsuch in dissent said the majority's reading of the law endorsed, quote, paternalistic central planning, end quote. And the chief for the majority dismissed what he called that evocative claim on Gorsuch's part. Uh, The chief said it's actually not paternalistic central planning, but instead it's the spirit of cooperative federalism that runs throughout the law and regulations at issue in the case. Well, we also had Gorsuch featured both ways in a couple of IP cases. He wrote for pretty much a unanimous court in Romag Fasteners versus Fossil, but again, kind of a weird uh, lineup. The court held that a plaintiff in a trademark infringement suit is not required to show that a defendant willfully infringed the plaintiff's trademark in order to get profits award. So um, big money involved there. Mm -hmm. And then Justice Gorsuch dissented from Justice Ginsburg's majority opinion in Thrive versus Click to Call Technologies, which precludes judicial review of the PTO's ability to determine when somebody is time barred from uh, reconsidering a already issued patent. So Gorsuch was actually joined by Sotomayor, not a frequent mm-hmm. uh, combination. Yeah, it's always fun to see those two lining up together. We've seen that in some criminal cases. But in addition to these kind of wacky lineups, Kimberly, we also had a the type of classic 5-4 lineup that we've come to know and love and appreciate on the court. Isn't that right? This 5-4 decision was actually in one of the many, many, many immigration cases that the, mm-hmm. that, uh, the court is hearing this term. This one was Barton versus Barr. And this is a really technical case. Um, it actually prompted Justice Kavanaugh to uh, write this in his m- majority opinion. He wrote, a caution to the reader. These arguments are not easy to unpack. Which is just like exactly what you want to hear when you're trying to write a story on that opinion and you're working from home and you're teaching kindergarten and third grade. So it was, uh, it was pretty fun. Thanks, Justice Kavanaugh. I'm going to try and unpack the arguments um, no matter how difficult. So here we're talking about lawful permanent residents or better known as green card holders who were subsequently convicted of certain crimes. Now, generally, certain crimes um, will get someone deported, but Congress has established a discretionary relief for certain longtime immigrants um, who have particularly um, significant ties to the United States. And to be eligible for that relief, the individual must have lived in the U.S. for seven continuous years. So, We're almost to the actual issue, I promise. The stop time rule stops the accumulation of those of that seven year residency requirement. And the question for the court, are you ready? Here it comes. Was what triggers the stop time rule? Well, now I want to (laughs) know. 
Well, the court in a 5-4 decision along ideological lines took an expansive view of the stop time trigger. And all of the Republican-appointed justices were in the majority and the Democratic ones in dissent. Um, this is going to make it harder for longtime green card holders to stay in the United States after convictions. And sometimes these convictions or the deportation proceedings come decades after the actual conviction. So um, tough cases. Justice Sotomayor wrote the dissent for her other three colleagues, in which she said that the court reaches its result only by contorting the statutory language and by breezily waving away applicable canons of construction. So easy, breezy, beautiful Supreme Court. <laughs> I was wondering where that was going. And yeah, <laughs> and so this opinion, this came down the same week that uh, President Trump expressed his desire to suspend immigration into the country, right? So that's been kind of a theme lately. That's right. And so um, that's one of the reasons that so many immigration opinions at the court this term is that the administration is not only aggressively applying immigration laws, but they're also aggressively fighting any losses in the courts. Um, so imagine that we'll see some more of these in the next few terms. I think so. So, Jordan, um, the last decision that we're going to talk about here is the one that has been generating the most buzz. That's Ramos versus Louisiana. And you've been covering that issue for a while now. Like, when was the Thames case that first kicked this all off for us recently? Like, 700 years ago? Uh, yeah, or last term. All right. Take us away. Evangelista Ramos was convicted of murder in Louisiana state court by a 10 to 2 vote on the jury. He argued on appeal that the Sixth Amendment requires unanimous jury verdicts in state court as well as federal court. Most people maybe don't even know that there were still non-unanimous convictions happening in the country. Um, but Louisiana recently voted to change its law to say that such verdicts aren't allowed going forward, but Oregon still allowed such split verdicts. But not for any longer because of this most recent Supreme Court decision in the Ramos case, which ruled that the Sixth Amendment requires unanimous jury verdicts, that that right is incorporated to the states through the 14th Amendment. Incorporation, of course, is the process by which Bill of Rights protections get applied to the states, and most protections already apply, like the one that you mentioned in that Tim's case, which incorporated the excessive fines ban last term, and this case was really just the latest example of that incorporation. So in terms of the holding, it was pretty uncontroversial, and pretty much everyone expected Ramos to win from the time that cert was even granted. So the decision, or I should say the, the holding anyway, was pretty expected. Okay, Jordan, but there's more to the Ramos case than just unanimous verdicts, right? That's right. So there's a lot going on here besides just the holding, which of course is important in its own right. These systems that allowed split verdicts were steeped in some pretty ugly histories of discrimination, and advocates have been trying to get the issue in front of the justices for years without success until this case. And this case actually caused five different justices to write opinions, which shouldn't seem necessary or expected to decide what by now is a pretty uncontroversial point that jury verdicts should be unanimous. Beyond this issue, the case wound up serving as a sounding board for larger discussions about precedent, something that's obviously on everyone's minds as we're waiting for a decision in the June medical services abortion case. And so in Ramos, Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion. He was joined in the result by Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, Kavanaugh, and Thomas. So that's sort of an interesting lineup there. Not one you see every day. No, certainly not. Um, 
But there were four opinions among those six justices with uh, Sotomayor, Kavanaugh, and Thomas each writing separately. Alito wrote the dissent, joined by Roberts and partially by Kagan. So that's another lineup that you don't see every day either. So uh, go into detail on every single (laughs) dissent and concurrence and tell us what happened. Or maybe just the highlights. Yeah. Well, even though no one has anything better to do, I'll still spare everyone all of that. Um... To set the stage a little bit for why this is a case talking about precedent, the reason that non-unanimous verdicts in state courts have been allowed over the years is a 1972 precedent, or let's call it a 1972 Supreme Court case called Apodaca. You'll see why I was hesitant to maybe even call it a precedent in a second. So anyway, Apodaca was a weird case that, like this Ramos decision in some ways, was a pretty badly fractured ruling with multiple opinions. But the vote in Apodaca was four to one to four, with one justice in the middle casting the deciding vote, saying that non-unanimous verdicts in state court were okay. But that one opinion was based on reasoning that none of the other eight justices agreed with. So it was a pretty weird situation. It's a phenomenon we've seen in some other 414 opinions, which is a whole another topic. Anyway, this Apodaca decision was pretty widely criticized over the years, and it wasn't until this decision in Ramos that it was finally overturned. But even the way that it was overturned was super complicated. So we had Justice Kavanaugh, who mentioned that other arguments were difficult to unpack. He kind of helped us unpack at least the complicatedness, as he put it, Quote, as I read the court's various opinions today, six justices treat the result in Apodaca as a precedent for purposes of stare decisis analysis. A different group of six justices concludes that Apodaca should be and is overruled, end quote. Isn't that like 12 justices? Yeah, exactly. So I think some of them, uh, (laughs) I think he might be counting some of them twice. And so what all that means is that because Gorsuch, Breyer, and Ginsburg, in part of Gorsuch's majority opinion, they say that Apodaca wasn't even really a precedent in the first place. So the remaining six treat the result in Apodaca as a precedent, while the three dissenters, Alito, Roberts, and Kagan, treated the case as a precedent but didn't think it should be overruled. So that clears everything right up, right? Um, yeah. Totally. (laughs) But, you know, it's really interesting that Kagan joined the dissent here, Mm -hmm. especially given that it was the chief and Alito, as we talked about before. But it does seem like she feels really passionate about this precedent issue. This isn't the first time that she's specifically talked about it. Right. So we talked before about cases in recent years where the Democratic appointed minority has criticized the majority of not respecting precedent. And Kagan does join part of Alito's opinion in the beginning where he says the majority in Ramos treats precedent pretty poorly here. Uh, But Kagan didn't join the last part of Alito's dissent where he basically lists a whole bunch of the dissents in recent years, including ones that Kagan was in, with Alito saying that the decision to overrule Apodaca is a bigger deal than a case like the Janus decision, for example, which overruled a long-standing precedent on public employee union dues. And Alito concluded his dissent, the part that Kagan didn't join, by saying, quote, by striking down a precedent upon which there has been massive and entirely reasonable reliance, the majority sets an important precedent about stare decisis. I assume that those in the majority will apply the same standard in future cases, end quote. So it's a super meta stare decisis within a stare decisis uh, 
riddle within a mystery. Yeah, exactly. And then in Kavanaugh's concurrence, he lists a whole bunch of precedents that have been overruled over the years on both sides. And so that includes really even the Roe versus Wade opinion itself. We have Justice Kagan who joined the dissent here, and that prompts a lot of speculation about, you know, what is she doing? Is she playing some kind of long game with strategies so she can, you know, turn around, say, in the June medical decision if the majority goes a different way or in some other case where she disagrees with overruling a precedent, she can say, hey, I was, you know, totally consistent here. But Kimberly, does that really make sense to you? Because the justices obviously can do whatever they want in any case. So she could turn around and say, hey, you said this thing before, but the whole point is if they don't feel bound by a prior decision, I mean, we don't think that Justice Alito, if he's making the decision whether to overrule abortion rights, he's not going to say, well, you know, Justice Kagan did dissent with me in the Ramos decision. So unfortunately, my hands are tied here, right? I mean, putting it like that on a, you know, on a case by case basis, maybe not. But over time, it lends her some credibility. I mean... I think she's turning 60 soon, and so she's still got a lot of time left on the court. So it may be even a longer game than just looking at Roe, but, you know, looking at issues that we haven't really even thought about that are going to come to the court in 20 years. That's an interesting point. How about instead of setting a precedent for these episodes being seven hours long, we get to the main event? Um... I will concur in the judgment. Yep. So uh, we're returning to a little bit of normalcy with this deep dive. And next week, we're going to have our sneak peek episode where we're going to look at all of the upcoming cases uh, in the first week of the historic May argument session. Today, we're going to do our traditional deep dive episode on a case that has some pretty big implications for Oklahoma. So Kimberly, you remember the case of Patrick Murphy last term? How could I forget? Right. Well, In case any listeners have forgotten, Patrick Murphy was the guy who was convicted of murder in Oklahoma State Court, but he challenged his conviction saying that the state didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute him because it was a crime involving Indians that took place on Indian land. And so that called into question whether the land was still a reservation, which on top of implications for criminal jurisdiction uh, would have an impact on taxes, regulations, and according to the state of Oklahoma, would basically have upended life as they know it in the eastern half of the state. So it was pretty dramatic claims at stake. Yeah, wasn't that the argument where Lisa Blatt kind of threw down with Justice Kagan? Uh, thought it might want to do. It decided it didn't want to do it in the end. No, that's fundamentally wrong in several respects. First of all, the 1901 Act called for Fundamentally the, wrong. It's fundamentally <laughs> wrong because the 19... Well, it's, it's factually wrong. The tribe, the allotment act called factually for, and, fundamentally. and fundamentally, it's factually wrong. Well, the answer to what happened with that one is nothing. Gorsuch was recused from that case because it came from the Tenth Circuit when he was still on there, and so the eight-member court couldn't reach a decision even after requesting supplemental briefing, which is something that we don't see in every case either. And so the court set the Murphy case down for re-argument this term, but instead of actually hearing the case again, they took up a new criminal case from Oklahoma State Court involving a man named Jim C. McGirt. Yeah, it was kind of puzzling at the beginning of the term when they didn't actually set uh, you know, the this case for argument. Normally, when they set a case for re-argument, they'll set it in the October sitting. Um, but many sittings went by without it 
being heard. Yeah, it was weird. And so there were a couple of pending cases, including this McGirt case that were on the docket. We were trying to figure out, you know, what's going on? Is the court maybe going to take up one of them? And the answer wound up being yes. So they granted cert in McGirt, which, as I've pointed out before, does run. <laughs> and so uh, Mr. McGirt, uh, he says, like Patrick Murphy, that the state didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute him either. And so the justices, they have the same issue teed up in front of them again, just through the lens of a new case. So are we basically just going to have the same argument again then? But now we get to use the cool name Jim C. McGirt? Well, sort of. Oh, you can definitely use the name for sure. That, that part's definitely true. But in terms of the substance, I'm curious to hear what our guest Riaz Kanji is going to say about that. But in terms of the atmosphere anyway, there's obviously the telephone aspect, but there's also a notable change in terms of who's arguing on the Oklahoma side. Instead of Lisa Blatt arguing for the state, we're not going to be able to have another one of these Blatt-Kagan throwdowns again, because it's going to be State Solicitor General Mithin Mansinghani, who we've had on the show last year talking about the census case. And is it a coincidence that after appearing on this show, Mithin is now making his Supreme Court debut? No, it's definitely not a coincidence. I'm sure we definitely had something to do about it. So attorneys out there, if you want a guaranteed way to argue at the Supreme Court, come on our podcast. Exactly. Unfortunately, our next guest has already argued at the Supreme Court, so we can't test this theory just yet. Let's bring him on. Riaz Kanji is a leading trial and appellate litigator for Indian nations and tribes across the country. He's a founding member of the law firm Kanji and Katzen, where he's the directing attorney for the firm's Ann Arbor office. Riaz clerked at the U.S. Supreme Court for now-retired Justice David Souter, and most importantly for this episode, he represents the Creek Nation in its ongoing battle with the state of Oklahoma. Riaz, thanks for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Uh, thank you very much for having me. So the state says that the sky is going to fall if you win this case. Criminals running free, tax and regulatory chaos. I take it that you might disagree with that, but why is it, in your view, that you think that the state is wrong? You're exactly right about the state's claims. And it's interesting because in a very recent opinion from the court, the the Ramos decision, uh, Justice Gorsuch described similar claims made by states regarding criminal convictions as as overstated. Uh, and I think that's certainly the, the case here. Um, all cases, of course, have consequences. Uh, this case will have consequences. But in truth, uh, the vast majority of disruptive consequences would come if the court were to disestablish the Creek Reservation, uh, not to affirm it. Uh, and I'll break that down on both the criminal and the civil side. Uh, on the criminal side, the state, as you say, argues that thousands of uh, criminals will be will be set free and will run amok. Um, first, to make the obvious point, nobody cares more about law, order, and public safety on the Creek Reservation than the Creek Nation itself. So, public safety is is a concern that you know is paramount to the nation. Uh, but the 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 numbers don't bear out the state's claims. Uh, since the time of the Tenth Circuit's decision in Murphy, uh, uh, there has been every incentive for criminal defendants, convicted criminals, to challenge their convictions either in state or federal proceedings. And what the state claims will be, you know, thousands of challenges, uh, has been, you know, f- much more in the vein of 
uh, 100 or 200 challenges at most in both systems, federal and, and state. Uh, and where, where Justice Gorsuch rightly said in the Ramos case, one wouldn't want to decide the Sixth Amendment rights of, uh, of citizens based on uh, thousands of convictions being overturned. Certainly, we think one, sh one shouldn't determine the fate of the Creek Reservation based on the possibility that, you know, 100 or 200 criminal defendants may challenge their convictions. And when they do, uh, there are a host of obstacles, procedural obstacles in both federal and state court to succeeding with those convictions. The federal courts have made it very clear that Congress's strict time bars, like a one-year time bar on challenging convictions, apply fully to, to Murphy claims. So in the, in the federal courts, those defendants have been uh, largely uh, shut out already. Hmm. So we're going to ask you a little bit about arguing this case remotely and um, how that affects your preparation and the case itself. But in terms of substance, is this just basically going to be a repeat of the argument that we had last term? Well, it's, it's hard to say, of course, because so much depends on the justices' questions. And here, uh, as you know, we will have Justice Gorsuch on the bench, whereas he was not there in Murphy. And my sense is that, you know, clearly everyone will be very interested to hear uh, his questions um, because he, you know, he will be the sort of the fresh face on the bench. Mm -hmm. uh, and Justice Gorsuch tends to, well, he is a textualist. He tends to focus on, you know, the plain language of, of statutes. And I wouldn't be surprised if we have more of a focus on the sort of the nuances of the statutory language here than we did uh, in the Murphy argument, where there was a lot of focus on uh, on consequences and, and to some extent on history. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Riaz, both in your brief on behalf of the Creek Nation and in McGirt's brief itself, there's numerous references to Justice Gorsuch and opinions that he wrote. So it's an interesting phenomenon just in terms of the case almost being teed up arguably to this one particular justice, maybe in a way that we don't always see happening. So it seems pretty much that that's, that's what's at stake here, right? It's Justice Gorsuch's vote. Well, we, we of course, you know, don't know what is going on uh, behind, behind closed doors. Uh, we have no real inkling as to why the court ordered re-argument. But the, the fact that there is, uh, I think, as you say, uh, you know, some for focus on Justice Gorsuch in the briefing, you know, it's not surprising for two reasons. One, uh, of course, he's, he's new to this case, uh, was not in, in Murphy. And so there's an obvious interest in uh, his views and, and, and his vote. But uh, perhaps more importantly, he sort of lies at the intersection of two strains of law that are, I think, critical to the disposition of this case. He mm -hmm. has an incredibly strong interest in statutory construction, you know, principles of interpretation. And in our view, certainly this case boils down to uh, those principles of textual interpretation. And then he also has a very strong interest in principles of Indian law and tribal history. Uh, so there was just a lot to draw from in his jurisprudence that is directly relevant to the 
disposition of the case. Yeah, so in addition to having Justice Gorsuch this time, another way that this case is going to be different from last time is that it'll be happening over the phone and remotely. Can you tell us about how this has changed your preparation for the argument? And do you think it'll have any impact on the substance of the argument? Well, it, it well might. Uh, so in terms of preparation, you know, right now I'm doing everything that I did uh, for the for the Murphy case. In other words, really trying to go back through all the materials, make sure I have as much mastery of the the statutory language, the case law, you know, the facts as as, as humanly possible. Uh, but there will be a sort of an additional element to preparation, which is figuring out, you know, how to be as effective as possible over the phone and especially, you know, without visual cues. So honestly, even doing this interview is <laughs> is good practice because <laughs> I can't tell right now whether I've been talking for too long or not long enough, right? I can't read your your facial expressions. So that's a, uh, that's a, I think, a, a concern that- Kimberly's making some really mean faces, but those aren't gonna show up. <laughs> you're doing, you're doing great. <laughs> Happy we <weekend. laughs> Well, you know, in seriousness, it's it's a real concern. I know that I personally uh, can certainly uh, have a tendency to, to 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 ramble sometimes if I if I can't pick up on those visual cues, um, and and so it's something I'm very cognizant of. I think with the court and with you know the nine justices on the phone, I suspect it won't be a huge issue because, uh, as you know, the court is very active in its questioning. I imagine the court will be active in uh, even over the phone. And so the prospects of, you know, talking on interrupt uninterrupted are, are probably remain very, very small. But there certainly will be additional challenges because of the, the lack of visual cues. And following up on that note, in terms of how the arguments actually going to be conducted by the court over the phone. So the court obviously made this announcement saying that they're going to do these arguments over the phone, Riaz, but has the court said anything more specific to you, the lawyers arguing the case, about how it's going to go? Because we don't really have much more details besides just the fact that there's going to be a phone argument. I think the court is still really working out a lot of details. All we've heard, uh, and this was just in the last day or two, was to make sure that we are prepared to use a landline and and that we have a really good phone, a really good speaker phone if we're going to use a, a speaker phone. Uh, and, and then we were told that there would be more information to come. So that's all we have so far. Obviously, we're very curious as to what systems the court might set up to ensure that, you know, the questioning proceeds in a in an orderly way and that all the issues that can happen on the phone with people cutting one another off or not knowing who is speaking when, uh, you know, that, that those are mitigated to the extent possible. Well, it's certainly going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Uh, Riaz, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us about the case and about this historic upcoming argument session. Well, thank you so much for the interest in the case. So, Kimberly, that'll certainly be one to listen for. And I thought it was interesting that Riaz brought up the, the Ramos case. That was yet another interesting aspect of the decision that we didn't even get into when we teed it up in terms of Gorsuch basically saying, well, you know, there might be some consequences that people don't like, but basically the law is the law. So it seems like people on McGirt and the Creek sides were heartened by that line from Justice Gorsuch, and they're hoping that he carries it through in this case, it seems. Do you remember in the um, 
seems like many, many years ago, but there are still these Title VII cases that are pending ah, out there. Yes. There's a, you know, a strong textualist argument that um, people who are arguing for anti-discrimination protections for LGBTQ workers um, kind of pulled on and... It, didn't Justice Gorsuch say something like, yeah, you got a good argument, but what about the, you know, really significant chaos that this would? Massive social massive upheaval. Massive social upheaval. Hmm, that seems to go the other way. That goes the other way if he writes that in the opinion, unless he, you know, maybe he was just messing around in the argument, but we'll see if uh, we can test out whether he's going to be consistent in that. Okay, and that's again, for the case of McGirt against Oklahoma, which will be argued on May 11th. And that's part of the two-week May telephone argument session that's starting May 4th. So before we let everyone go, um, Kimberly, you had a story about an interesting development at the court that wasn't in a decision, but it was a rare rebuff. What was that all about? Yeah, so the... (laughs) Solicitor General's office argues in about 90% of the cases or some crazy number like that. Mm -hmm. And so this term, we saw them argue not just as parties, but as amicus in a couple dozen cases. Uh, And the justices typically allow the SG to argue as an amicus. um, Right. But every so often, they say, no, thank you. And that's what happened in a case that the justices are going to hear next term uh, about jurisdiction. So take that, SG. Well, on that note, I think we can uh, let everyone go for now. But remember to tune in next week for our sneak peek preview of all the cases that are going to be argued in this historic May 4th telesitting. Until then, thanks for listening. May the 4th be with you. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, superfund, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater... That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks for listening.